talk, we talk, we talk Superman, and we know what's happening. We talk, we talk, we talk Superman, and we cover everything. Hello and welcome once again to the All-Star Superfan Podcast, the podcast that delves into any and all things Superman throughout the full 80-year legacy of the Man of Steel. I'm one of your hosts, Rob O'Connor, and I'm joined once again by the Midlands Man of Steel himself, the one and only Mr. Alan Burke. How are you doing tonight, sir? Hey, Rob, I'm in great form. Very excited again for tonight's episode. We have an absolute titan of a guest with us tonight, and I, 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 I can't wait to get started. Absolutely. Uh, so once again, we'd like to remind you that you can like us on Facebook at All Star Super Fan. You can follow us on Instagram on All Star Super Fan. Follow us on Twitter at All Star Super Pod. Please get in touch. Let us know your thoughts and feelings on all the exciting topics we discuss with our very, very special guest. Um, first and foremost, we'd like to extend a very, very special All Star welcome uh, to that special guest, comic book creator and screenwriter J.M. Demetrius best known for his iconic work on titles like Justice League International, Spider-Man, so, so, so many others, and one of Alan's favorite uh, comic book stories, uh, Superman Speeding Bullets. Uh, JM, you're very, very welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, so, so I suppose, first of all, we, we ask all of our guests to, to sort of introduce themselves um, and tell us about your history with, with Superman specifically. With Superman. You know... Someone asked me recently uh, about uh, what was the first comic book I remember reading. And, and I don't know because comic books were always around when I was a kid. They were just there. There must have been some point where I was introduced to them, but they were just, they were omnipresent. And I always remember reading them. And Superman was always a part of that. So certainly uh, just Superman in the comics when I was a kid growing up. And I'm of the generation that was watching George Reeves on television. Yeah, we uh, love George you know. Reeves. You know, and, 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 you know, then it, it would be rerun every day after school. I mean, they, they reran those things forever in the United States anyway. So between the sort of uh, classic uh, Kurt Swan Superman of that era, uh, Wayne Boring, all that stuff from that era, and George Reeves, that's, that's the first, my first memories uh, of Superman. You know, it's sort of, Superman is one of these interesting characters because People that have never read a Superman comic know who Superman is. Everyone, it's it's like it's imprinted on our collective consciousness, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like he's some archetype that has risen up out of our collective unconscious and taken this particular form. This I'm going to completely sidebar for a second. <laughs> One of my theories is that there are certain figures that recur, you know, archetypes that that recur through all of history, through different cultures, through different mythologies, and and. We, we, we dream them up in new ways for each new culture that I feel like in some form there has been a Superman that's risen up from our collective unconscious. And, and for us now, that's the figure that it's taken a thousand years from now or 500 years from now it might be something different. But that Superman in some form has always been there. Yeah, because a lot of people think, and, and comic book fans especially, um, kind of of our generation now think that comic books have kind of uh, crossed over into this new era where they are basically like a modern mythology almost like yeah. the greek mythologies of, yeah. of the past that they're they're the modern mythology you know the stories of gods and monsters and, and and things like that and i don't think anybody represents that as as good as some of the dc characters like you know superman and batman and that and and how they uh, parallel with those with all those old school gods yeah and and it's and and the question is so what 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 
what does this represent? You know, why do we need this particular figure and why does it recur and why is it? Because, you know, even before this whole idea of, oh, it's modern mythologies, Superman had that, that mythological thing. He just spread through the culture, global culture, so quickly. So it's fascinating to me. You know, and, and for me personally, it's not, you know, yeah, there is the level of, you know, kids' power fantasy, blah, 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 but that's not what it's about for me. Mm. It's about this representation of the best in us. And it's also in the Clark Kent Superman dynamic in the fact that a lot of us go through lives, our lives thinking we're, we're like Clark Kent, we're this powerless little schmo or we're perceived <laughs> that way. But we all have this incredible potential to be something so much more in our lives. And to me, Superman is about that potential about we, we can all be that within us all, you know, we're all, we all have this place in us where we can pull open our shirt and reveal the S because that's who we all are underneath. And we walk around sometimes for our entire lives, just moping around thinking we're Clark Kent when we're all Superman. And the question is, I guess, where does Superman lie in the collective consciousness right now? He yeah. doesn't seem to have the same, uh, the same place that he once did for a lot of people. The, and yet at the, the character, but the symbol is again, it's universal. You could go anywhere. You could probably go anywhere in the world. You could probably walk through a village in India and find yeah. someone in a Superman t-shirt. And there's something powerful in that symbol. There's something so powerful in that symbol. And the one other thing I wanna say, which I didn't realize I had this much to say about Superman, um, is that I also think the other thing about the character, and I think what I think his greatest power is of everything, is his is his decency and compassion. That's why I love mm -hmm. the Christopher Reeve version also. Because yeah. it was like, if they, if they had made a Superman movie in the, in the late 30s, early 40s, it would have been James Stewart. You know what I mean? It yeah. would have been this really decent, caring guy. And and above, you know, above, above and beyond all the strength and the powers, he's a truly decent human being. And Christopher Reeve really embodied that, the, the inherent right. decency of the character. I really like the idea of James Stewart playing Superman and actually <laughs> yeah. giving Mary the moon. <laughs> that's oh, right Mary. that's great that's great <laughs> it's one of my all-time favorite movies so you it's so, perfect so thing. So just to take it back a little bit um jm um yeah. so you're you're like i said earlier on you're an absolute titan when it comes to comic book writing you're one of the greats and one of my favorites um we'll talk about it later on but you said there earlier that you don't remember the first um the comic book that you read but i, I clearly remember that the very first book uh, that i ever read was was speeding bullets um really the first comic you ever read the very first one wow. I ever bought. And I was familiar with the Christopher Reeve movies and stuff before that. But the, the very first one, I, I live in the southeast of Ireland, or I did at the time. And comic books, they were difficult to come by, um, especially in the early 90s. It wasn't a, it wasn't a big thing um, over here at the time. And uh, I remember my parents buying me Speeding Bullets, and it just it stayed with me forever. It really lit a passion with me. Um, but how, how did you get into comic book writing in the first place? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? I will, but I want to back that up a second. So if you hadn't been reading comic books and the first thing you read is this complete inversion of these two, two yeah. mythos. What's the plural of mythos? Is plural of mythos mythos? There's a good question. Um, <laughs> but you know, what did that do to your little brain? Would that, did that confuse you? No, because uh, like I was, I was, I was very familiar with the Christopher Reeve films. Oh, you were. So you knew yeah. the basics. I yeah, see. And, I, I, and even like I, I come from that generation. Those kind of you know kids that were born in the eighties who were watching movies that really weren't appropriate for them, right. like RoboCop and and right. the nineteen eighty nine <laughs> Tim Burton Batman movies and things like that from a very young age. Um, so I was familiar with the, like I knew the the history of the characters and I I knew what was happening 
straight away that something now obviously it took me a little bit to once I realized that there was you know there, there was a change to it I didn't realize what a what an Elseworlds story was at the time right um, but then as soon as soon as you see the Kents uh, find the rocket ship and and and, and find Kal-El and you know it, it twigs with you that this is different this is a different a different take on the character and uh, I I think it was actually Rob's first book as well yeah I was just, I was just going to jump in there it, it I'm a, a few years younger than Alan and one of my earliest memories ever, JM, is my father explaining to me why this this comic I was reading was so different and why the worlds of Batman and Superman were kind of clashing into each other. Wow. And like this was before I could read. I remember thumbing through these pages. I specifically remember the, the panel where uh, Lex Luthor reveals himself as the Joker and my father like explaining this to me. Um, so, so like even at that at, at that age, I was very very confused, and I was like, "What? Why is this? What? what, what it's this Batman? See. Is this Superman? Is both? I don't know. I don't understand." But I do remember really really enjoying it. So, wow, really excited! Wow, that's amazing. That's really amazing. That's great. Um, I, I'm glad I was a a, a a portal to your comic book editions. Oh, absolutely. My my wife my wife won't thank you um, as a result of all the, the the disposable income that has been spent in the years since. But um, so, but just so your get, question was, how did I get started? Right? Yeah, it's just it. You know, it, it's such. Uh, we we obviously have um, comic book writers here from Ireland now, but like it's 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 like to describe to someone, say, when I was ten or eleven in Ireland back in the nineties, how that you know you could get into writing comics. That, that could be a career and a profession, you know, that would have been, un, you know, unfathomable to me. You know, um, it was kind of unfathomable to me too. I was a working class kid from Brooklyn. I didn't know anybody who made their living being creative. I had one friend who had an older brother who was sort of a working musician, an on the road kind of musician. That was the closest I got to anybody in the creative arts that could make their living doing such a thing. So the idea of of doing doing anything creative for a living, it was like, like I always imagine it was like the monolith from 2001. And how do you get over that monolith yeah. to be one of those people on the other side? But I was, but I was just always creative when I was a kid. Before anything else, I was always drawing. And then I discovered uh, music and I started playing guitar and playing in bands. And I did that for years and I still play music and I still write songs and sing and all that. Um, and then I always enjoyed writing as well. So I always knew that my path was gonna be creative. But again, you know, this dumb little kid from Brooklyn, I didn't know how I was going to do it. And, and I always say that God made me so bad at everything else in my life that I had no choice. You know? <laughs> I had to follow my creative path or else I would have been ruined, you know. And the other thing is, what you know, I do, I do these writing workshops and I talk a lot about the power of will in the creative life. And I think even more than talent will is the single most important thing you need if you're going to succeed in a creative life because the creative life by its very nature is filled with rejection and it doesn't matter how successful you are you know i still deal with rejection you know pitching projects and that or it takes it five years or ten years to get the project running you have to have a really thick skin and a really fierce will and i just had a will you know i don't know where it came from but i just knew this is what i want to do and i'm going to bang my head against the wall until the wall breaks. So like my two big goals were up, you're going to be a rock and roll star or a writer. So you can see how practical I was. Um, and, and I always say to my students too, you know, if, if, you're, if, if you're looking for practicality, then you shouldn't be a writer because it's the most impractical thing you could possibly think of doing, any, any, anything in the arts. And the other thing is that you're always going to be surrounded by people who are going to give you a thousand reasons why you can't succeed at it. 
Oh, it's so impractical. You, can, you know how many, you know, one out of a thousand people even get through the door and blah, 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 blah. And you're going to hear all these reasons. And, and on the one hand, they're coming in their own minds from a good place. But really what they're trying to do is they're trying to poison your dream and, and get you to stop. And you can't listen to that. You can't listen to the practical people and you have to have a fierce will. So that's what I did. Um, while I was playing in bands, I, you know, I'd be, I, during the day, I'd be playing music at night, writing short stories during the day and sending them off to magazines, remember magazines, yeah. and getting, re- <laughs> getting rejected. Uh, you know, but even the rejection, it, it was a really great learning process because first of all, I was writing every day. So I was exercising those muscles. And very often with rejections came feedback. So you know, you'd, get, you'd have some contact with somebody on the other side of that monolith. And then I, of course, I always loved comics. So I knew I, I didn't, I did my goal was not to be a comic book writer. My goal was to be a writer, but I had a real passion for comics. So, uh, you know, I, I, it would take too long to go through all my efforts to get through those doors. But eventually what happened was um, I sent some writing samples into DC. The first thing I actually sold was at Marvel too. They had a mad magazine knockoff called Crazy Magazine. Oh, yeah. and, and I knew a guy from college who had been working in the production department at Marvel and sold some things to crazy and said, you should try to sell them something. And, and it was not my forte at all, but I, I, I sent them some stuff. And the editor's name was Paul Lakin. And he bought something. And I got a check with Spider-Man's face on it. It was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, um, I was hoping that that would open the door to the comic book side of Marvel, but it didn't. Nothing, nothing happened beyond that. So I sent some samples to D.C., one of which was a Superman story. Now that I remember, wow. it was like an eight page awesome. Superman story uh, that I wrote um, and, and another little eight pager that was really the seeds of a, a a project that grew into Moonshadow, which was my first major creator own project. And the third one, if I'm remembering correctly, was a Plastic Man story. I don't know why I chose Plastic Man, I think <laughs> because I wanted something that would tilt into the absurd, you know? Yeah. And so I got a, I got an, e- uh, an email, like there were emails, and I got a letter <laughs> back from somebody at DC, some assistant editor, I don't even remember who, who saying, uh, well, you know, we're not gonna buy a Superman story from some guy we've never heard of, but Paul Levitz is buying material for the DC anthology books. They had those books like Weird War Tales and House of Mystery, House of Secrets, all that strange stuff, which I had never read those books. They didn't exist to me. So I, of course I ran, went out and bought a bunch of copies to see what they were talking about. And I started pitching Paul uh, stories through the mail. And I still have the first letter uh, that he sent back to me where he tore my stories to shreds <laughs> uh, and justifiably criticized my typing because this was a day of typewriters and I was like writing things in and typing along the side of the page and <laughs> putting little arrows, you know. But at the bottom, and I always give credit to Paul that he that he did this, said, please feel free to submit again. He could have just said, forget it, go away and leave me alone, you know? Yeah. And and here's where the will comes into it again. All I saw was, please feel free to submit again. Someone else could have read that and said, oh, he hated my stories. He hated my typing. I'm going to go away now. But I was like, okay, I'll submit again. So I submitted again a couple of more times. And finally, because I lived in Brooklyn, I was able to go up to the DC office and meet Paul face to face. I pitched him some more stories. He liked one. I wrote it. We went through a few drafts. He taught me a lot of things just right from the get-go in that first script. And he bought it. And oh. someone asked me this just recently. They said, you know, tell me about one of some of your big moments in comics. And I remember Paul Levitz shaking my hand and saying, welcome to the business. Wow. And that was like, wow. whoa, that's amazing. You know, and, and I always say I, I didn't need to take the subway back to Brooklyn. I could have just flown home the whole way. <laughs> and that, presume- that, that opened the door. And from there, you know, I kept doing more work for DC. I got some work over to Jim Shooter at Marvel. He liked it. 
brought me over to Marvel and that it's been going on ever since. I presume you kept the Spider-Man check. It's framed in your office. You didn't cash you know, it straight away. If only if, I, if only I did, but I really needed the money. <laughs> Even if it was 25 bucks, I needed the money then, you know? Yeah. And like, I mean, what a career, like Rob said earlier, you know, uh, the Defenders, Captain America, Prince Namor, Doctor Strange, Craven's Last Hunt, Justice League International, you know, the spectacular Spider-Man. You've really dipped your toe into so many different characters. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I feel lucky in that I've, I've been able, especially with the anim- animation work as well, to to yeah. write almost all these characters, especially in the DC universe, because with the animation I, I got to write many characters that I'd never got to write in comic book form. So so many of those characters, plus to do my creator own work, which is really, really important to me to be able to have those areas where it's just my stories and my characters and my worlds. Um, and, and then it, it's opened so many doors for me, you know, to writing for TV, to writing for film, to writing books, you know, and prose. And uh, it's been an amazing, it's been an amazing journey and happily it's still going. So and do you think, like, has the world changed a lot since that time? Could you still get into comic book writing in the same fashion that you did today? Or That's a really good question. And I don't know if you could, because there's so much, you know, now it's like your competition of novelists and screenwriters yeah, who are yeah. like, oh, I'd like to write a comic book, you know? So yeah. how does how does some somebody who, you know, I think the way it works now, the way what I've seen in recent years, is more and more people going off and doing their own little indie comic book and maybe publishing yes. it themselves. So you have something, something you could hold in your hand and go to a convention and hand to somebody and say, here's my work. Because it's harder for a writer than it is for an artist. An artist can show you three pages and you can get a sense of what they can do. You know, when they say, well, give me a plot synopsis, uh, that doesn't in any way explain yeah. what you can do as a writer or even a one page or two page or whatever. So to have a piece of work that they can actually see and read a whole story or a whole arc or something, that seems to be the way people are going today. But you know, I'm again, even with that, I'm a firm believer in in following your passion and using your will. And that even in today's atmosphere, I think a little schmo like me could still get in the door if you really wanted to. (laughs) Just to, just to not to dovetail too far now, but just to pick up on something you said there, JM, did you find it, um, freeing to work on creator-owned uh, projects where you're not beholden to, you know, a character's history or a house style or, you know, a continuity or anything like that? Is it is it a completely different um, experience kind of writing those kinds of stories? It is in many ways. What's not different is story is story is story. So a great story, whether you're writing that story for Spider-Man or, or for your own creator-owned book, you're still working in the realm of story. But the joy for me is 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 the is the complete creation from the ground up of entire you know sometimes entire universes. Um, it's all yours. There's no one looking over your shoulder telling you you can do this, you can't do that. Um, there are no filters. You know you 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 want to deal with a certain theme or say something a certain way where maybe in another context you couldn't. It's it's it really is complete creative freedom. It's you and your artist, and that's basically it. Because usually with the creator own books. Uh, even if you're doing it for an established company, they're just sort of trafficking it. You know, it's your book and they're letting you do it your own way. So I'm essentially my own editor. There are, there are rare exceptions. I did a book in 2019 for Karen Berger's new line at Dark Horse. Karen is very hands-on and very involved, even if it's your project, you know, and that's, but you go to work for Karen because you want Karen to be involved in that way. Uh, But for the most part, when I'm doing creator-owned work, it's just me and the artist doing it exactly the way we want to do it. And that is incredibly liberating and 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 great great fun but it doesn't take away from the joy of doing the other stuff yeah yeah and um just to to kind of 
segue back into um you, you know alan's favorite book speeding bullets okay. uh the, so so obviously you know the 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 idea is what if Kal-El landed in Gotham and was found by the Waynes? Was that an idea you brought to DC or yeah. did DC commission you to write it or how did it work? No, I brought, I brought that to them. Uh, my memory is, you know, ideas just pop into your head. And, you know, uh, again, I say to my writing classes, sometimes you have an idea and you pitch it and you pitch it and you pitch it. And I've had ideas I've had to pitch for 10, 15, 20. In one case, I think it was 25 years before I sold the idea. But I think Speeding Bulls was just one of the, ah, oh, here's a cool idea. And I called up Mike Carlin, I think he was the editor, and said, what do you think about this? And he was like, okay, and off we went. It was as simple as that, really. It was just, you know, okay, they're doing, they're doing these Elseworld stories. It seemed to me to be the most primal primal Elseworlds you could do. And so years later, someone pointed out to me that they had done something similar to it when they used to do imaginary stories all those years yeah. before, yeah. Uh, which I never knew. I thought I, you know, I thought I made up this brilliant idea, but someone else obviously had the same brilliant idea. Very different execution, I'm sure. But, uh, but that's why it was fun, because what could be more fun than mixing up Superman and Batman, the two great iconic characters? Um, so that was, a, that was one of those fun stories that kind of wrote itself yeah, and it's it's such a great story. It it really works so well, and everything about it, you know, it's such a tight story. It's one of my favorite um, depictions of the death of the Waynes. I think it's just so powerful, and that the twist when um, young Bruce or you know Kal El, you know, the, the, that's when he 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 gains the power of his his heat vision, and he melts Joe Chill's face off, and the visuals they are amazing. The, you know, that, yeah, that Eduardo Barreto superb artist yeah yeah like and it's a real like the 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 we, we spoke about it recently on the podcast i i it was one of my picks it's one of my favorite books and um like just the, it really gives a feeling of almost film noir to it as well there's just it's such a great story i really really loved it and what was it like how it, was it well received at the time were you were you happy with it i think it was i think i you know it's, it's been a long time, but I think it was the Comics Buyer's Guide. It won some fan award or something. That's all I remember. But um, I think it was well-received. My, my memory is that it was. Um, you know, in those days, honestly, before the internet, you, you know, the only feedback you were really getting was if people wrote letters, and that's usually to an ongoing monthly book. Yeah. So, you know, for a one shot like that, you kind of sailed it out into the world. And if your fellow professional said, hey, I read that story, I liked it, that was a lot of fun that was the reward you got. You know, the real reward was like, did I just write a good story? Did I write something that I really, really enjoyed? And uh, and I did, I remember really, really having a lot of fun with that. Yeah, it, it was just, you know, like I said, it was, I think I've done a bunch of these uh, uh, DC animated movies. Yeah. And I think Speeding Bullets would make just a great, yeah, great animated movie. I, I, It's such a no brainer that I'm surprised they haven't done it. Yeah. Absolutely. And and they seem to really lean heavily on Batman and Superman yeah. in those animated movies. So why so not think, throw them together? Yeah, um, I, I I notice any any time I read it, I I feel like the um, the influence of Tim Burton's uh, movie is is palpable in that book. It it feels like it was um, somewhat inspired by it in, in just little touches. Like I, I I don't know if this was intentional or not, but Lois Lane's hair in it looks very similar to Kim Basinger's hair in that movie, and I feel like there's a line of dialogue that might have even been lifted from the movie. Well, was that on your mind at the time or was my, that an intention? Yeah, my memory is no. So, I mean, what year did Speedy Bullets come out? Was it early 93. 90s, right? 93. 93 and, yeah. and the Timber, first Tim Burton movie was 89, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah but Batman was, Returns would have been 92, so it would have yeah. been... Yeah, if it was, uh, it wasn't like I was consciously trying to do that in any way. But if that was 
floating out there in the zeitgeist. You know, I'm sure it was. Yeah. It, it was it was floating around. You know, we were we're all influenced by these things sometimes, whether we realize it or not. Especially when we're all dealing in these same universes and these same characters. Yeah. But I don't remember thinking, you know, thinking about that in any way, shape, or form. Speaking um, of, of 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 Lois Lane in that book, what I really love about your depiction of Lois Lane in that book is how you swapped it around in that Lois is absolutely disgusted by the Batman character. And when she sees, you know, she's about to be attacked in the street and he shows up and you get the impression because you're so used to it that she's going to fawn all over him and, you know, he's her savior. And she kind of almost wretches back, you know, she's, she's horrified by his brutality, but then she's drawn towards the Bruce Wayne character, you know, the, the, the real the real person yeah, the humanity uh, you know. beneath that the vulnerability yeah and it's it's that. such a yeah. just it's such a juxtaposition compared to the traditional superman stories where obviously superman is her guy and you know she she doesn't see clark basically yeah yeah and and she's the one that sees the superman within him essentially yeah you know and that's one of the things of the of that story and i think a lot of the elseworld stories is that no matter how you try to bend him or twist him his ultimate destiny is to be superman yeah, because that is the best expression of who he is as a person. So, yes, these events twisted him around, but there is always going to be something in him that's going to bring him back to who he's supposed to be. Yeah. And Eduardo did such a beautiful job with the costume, the the amalgamation of the costume, yeah. of the Superman and the Batman. It's like yeah. it, 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 it's for a better word, it, it's really metal. You know, it's real. It's just <laughs> it's just a kick ass, you know, 90s Batman suit. A lot of those ones where they kind of go off, you know, they go off in a different direction. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But, he, you know, he really landed it with that. Was there yeah, much discussion really between, was there much discussion no, between that the was, two I, of you? I'm pretty sure, I mean, I must have described, I, it's been, remember, it's been a long time. Yeah. I'm sure I described my own vision of what it would look like in 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 my script. But I'm sure he took that and ran with it. And, and I know that I was delighted with it because he just did a beautiful job on the whole book. Yeah. Sorry, I never got to work with him more. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately, he passed away some years ago. And yeah, you know, may he rest, may he rest in peace. Yeah. yeah, that's no, it's um, it'll always be on my my top, you know, my number one shelf. It's it's a masterpiece. I really, really. Oh, love thank it. you, thank you um, so much. You know, it's so funny because you never know. Going back to what we saying to reaction, how stories are going to land. Yeah, you never know. Like I've always thought, oh, speeding bullets. That was really a fun one. You know. Yeah. But that it means that much to you that it impacted you in that way and that it's you still feel that way about it it's really yeah. it's really great I, I always had a memory of it as i grew older and I, I got into comics and into into the the movies and into you know the books and stuff i always had this strong memory of the book i i didn't have the original copy as i grew older um and i always had this strong memory of it of do you remember that story i wonder what that's i can't i couldn't remember the name of it as i was a teenager and you know growing older i was like they're, they're this amazing batman story you know the superman story where you know he lands in Gotham City and you know eventually then I I, I found it in one of the comic book shops up here in, in, in Dublin and I bought it and I read it again I was like it can't be as good as I remember it being and it was it was I you know it's a great yeah, that's great because that's dangerous when you see something that you, <laughs> you saw when you were young and, and you know, yeah. and you get a, one impression of it and sometimes we revisit these things years later and we just hang our heads so I'm glad that it held up um, and you, you you mentioned there about working you know writing television and, and, and stuff um uh, is that something you enjoy doing? Yes, very much so. Very much so. It's a very different, um, very different headspace. Kind of going back to what we we're talking about, creator own books, where it's like total freedom to do whatever you want exactly the way you want to do it. And it's uh, w- when I'm working in TV, I have to take that hat off and put on my 
serious collaboration hat because you're working with a whole, usually with a group of people. Yeah. And especially if you're writing for a TV series, um, very often you've got a show where they've got, they've got a season mapped out. Uh, they have certain beats that they have to hit, certain stories that they want to tell. And I'm a freelancer. I'm not there working on staff. So they bring me in as a freelancer and say, this is the story we want to tell this week. Here's the basic idea. Let's you go off and develop it or we'll have like, you know, we'll get on the phone and talk for an hour or two about the story and then I'll go off and write it. So it's a very, very collaborative thing. Um, luckily, 99% of the people that I've had to collaborate with in TV and film have been just amazing people. And the people, you know, in, in the the DC animated world, like, you know, the Bruce Timms and Jim Krieg and Alan Burnett and James Tucker and all these guys, Dwayne McDuffie, Stan Berkowitz, uh, all these people are just, they're, they're, they're great storytellers themselves. Yeah. So I always say, what a delight for me to be able to just get on the phone and talk to like when we were doing Red Sun, get on the phone with Jim Krieg and uh, Bruce Tim and talk story for two hours. Yeah. It's just fun for me, you know? Um, so, so yeah, so I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've really, really enjoyed it. What's, Red, what's the process like taking a story like Red Sun that's, uh, you know, was written by another writer and, and is an iconic Superman story in its own right and then adapting it for, for animation? Yeah, you know, adaptation, as I've learned, because I've had to, a number of these movies have, if, if they haven't been direct adaptations, have taken elements out of other stories, pre-existing stories. And I think the key, what, I, what I've figured out is the key to a good adaptation is not in the details. It's in the heart and soul of the story. You want to be true to the essence of what that story is about. You know, details come, details go. The writing a 90-minute animated movie and and I don't remember I don't remember how many issues Red Sun was in its original form, but it's a big story. It's a big sprawling story. Yeah. Um, it doesn't translate the same way, and you can't translate it the same way. And the other thing is, why do you want to see an adaptation that's exactly like the source material yeah. in every way? Then just go read the source material. You want to stay true to the essence of it and and break it open in some other way. And that's you know Red uh, Red Sun was a hard one, not in a bad sense, but a hard one because there's so much in it. There yeah. are so many, I keep I keep comparing it to Jack Kirby just because every page there's like ideas popping like popcorn in that story. Well, that's a cool idea. Well, that's a cool idea. Oh, that really that? Oh, wow. But you can't, you can't use all that in a 90 minute movie. A 90 minute movie has to be, it's like you're tunneling through rock, you know? Uh, so, so, so Mark created this mountain of a story and we have to tunnel through that mountain. And, right. and get the essence of that story and get to the other end, to the other side. Of, we both, we're both getting to the other side of the mountain, but he's the whole mountain and we're the tunnel kind of going through it. That's a new metaphor that I just made up on the spot. So, <laughs> and, and just, so yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go, go ahead. No, it's okay. I, I, I was just going to, Red Sun is, is particularly interesting because it, it navigates kind of um, very interesting kind of political waters that, you know, yeah. typically a Superman story might not yeah uh, do you know superman stories are usually escaped they're usually fantasy adventure whatever this is a very specifically political story did you find that difficult to navigate at all or what was no it, was that it part you know that part was easy and actually uh there was some satisfaction in that considering what's going on what was going on in the united states as we were writing that um to sort of lean into that was 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 uh was a good thing no that didn't bother me at all and it wasn't difficult because it, it must be difficult, you know, to adapt it. You're not going to please everybody, obviously. There's always going to be yeah. people who, who yeah. aren't happy no matter what you do. Um, you know, if, if you do it exactly like the book, people are going to be happy that it's exactly like the book. And if you don't, they're not. Um, but, you know, Red Sun really lends itself to that uh, medium, I think, you know, to that storytelling medium. Um, and it's it's 
it must be difficult like if if the stories are too thin you know you you really have to stretch it out for the film but if they're too full if there's you know if if it's two books if it's like something like the dark knight returns or something like that you know you could overstuff it as well um and i think red sun has a great balance in it you know it's it, it's it's really well translated and you know it, it's one of my favorite of the of the superman original animated movies it's oh, thank you. it's really i i just wanted to ask you um it, one of the differences in the book compared to the film is in the in the film um superman straight out kills stalin in it he, he murders him do you remember why you made that change um i, I think in the book he was poisoned I think, if I'm remembering correctly, one of the, one of the things we wanted to lean into more was, you know, Stalin. In, my memory is in 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 the original story, Stalin. I mean, Stalin was a monster, hmm. and he didn't quite come off as monstrous. I think in the comic, uh, we didn't really. That's one of the reasons why we went to the camps in the movie, which you didn't see. Yeah. Uh, in in the comic, where Lana was in the camps, and you really saw the monstrous stuff that Stalin was doing, and so. Um, I think that was that was part of of just Superman stepping up to stop this guy, who who was a complete monster and and of course, what the part of the part of the, the evolution of the story is he doesn't realize that he himself is turning into a monster as he's trying to make the world a better place. Yeah. That's the uh, that's the push pull of that story. His 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 um, ideals are in the right place and his execution is all wrong. Yeah, and maybe the, the maybe the mistakes begin with that moment that he kills Stalin. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I thought that was actually thought that was a very powerful moment because you don't expect Me it. Too. Yeah. You don't expect that. Uh, Superman, he's not going to do that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and even even the the change with Lana, I think in the book Lana basically grew up to be like a, a journalist or a newspaper reporter or something, and it was so much more powerful to see the effects of what Stalin had done, where you see her in basically a, a gulag or some some form yeah. of, of camp, and, yeah. and, and and you know she she passes away or you know um, like little changes like that that I think were uh, gave a lot more weight to it. I thought. And, you know, the nice thing, I was just talking to somebody about this recently, if you do a good adaptation, so you've got a really nice adaptation, you have the original material, and they sort of come together to form a third story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes when I've gone to the movies and I've seen an adaptation of some book that I've really enjoyed, and they do something different, and it creates like a third world in my head of this story. And I hope that's what happened with Red Sun, because like yeah. I said, the original material was fantastic. And I hope we did a good job so that, you know, you should be able to enjoy both versions of it. Absolutely. I, I uh, staying on the on the topic of screenwriting. I want to wind the clock back a little bit. Uh, okay. This might this m- might not be a project you you think about an awful lot uh, anymore. But you wrote, if I'm not mistaken, five episodes of the Adventures of Superboy. Yep. In in the early nineties, um, yep. it's 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 one of the more uh, forgotten kind of chapters in in the Superman TV legacy, and uh, I I find it. A fascinating show. I think it really came into its own in the third season, and then you obviously wrote those episodes in the fourth season. I I, I think they're some of the best episodes of the whole show. Um, the, you wrote an episode called "Know Thine Enemy," which yeah, my favorite, with, my favorite of the of what I did. Yeah, it's it's so so good. I watched it again last night. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, it deals with sort of it touches on Lex Luthor's origin. And um, so Lex Luthor in the show is is kind of the traditional sort of Silver Age. Uh, mad scientist on the run and um the episode starts with lex Luthor just announcing that he's going to destroy the world essentially with uh, a series of of dirty bombs that he's planted around um the uh, around the city and superboy tracks him down and uh well he thinks he tracks him down 
and he he activates this thing called a psycho disc which brings him into lex luther's memories and we see lex luther's memories as a child through superboy's eyes and i just thought it was such an ingenious way of um showing the hero kind of uh, why his nemesis became the way he did and and i i always love depictions of virtual worlds before the matrix came out because you know you're 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 kind of ahead of the game in that sense i just wanted to know like where did the idea come from for that episode you know what one of my one of the things i enjoy doing uh in all my stories and you can see it in my comic book work is i want to understand the characters and you especially want to understand the villains that they're not quote, villains, they're human beings who have been twisted and have gone a certain way. To call someone a villain, then they're just twirling their mustache and saying, rah, ha, ha, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, whether it's Craven or, or any of these characters, you know, why mm. do they do what they do? That's the question I say to my students. It's, I call it the big why. Why do they do what they do? Why does Craven put on his pedal pushers and get a gun and chase Spider-Man around? Um, what, what, what made Lex Luthor? And I didn't, you know, uh, I didn't really dip into the comic book lore that much. There were certain little bits that I, that I had a hit because it involved more than anything his relationship with his sister. Um, yes. But why does Lex do um, what he does? And I thought that, that the idea of having our main character, you know, it's really an exercise in compassion. Walk in somebody else's shoes and you will never see them the same way again. Yeah. So I thought that was a great device and uh, had a lot of freedom on that show uh, to write those stories. Uh, a, lot, a lot more freedom in a lot of ways than you often get on television. Stan Berkowitz, who was the person who really opened the door to animation for me later on, was the producer. He's the guy that came in in the third season and turned that show around. And, uh, and so Stan, uh, Andy Helfer and Mike Carlin at DC were the consultants on the Superboy show. I had uh, sold little... A couple of years before that, I'd sold my first TV script to the 1980s version of The Twilight Zone. Uh, Stan was cool. looking for writers and Mike and Andy said, oh, you should talk to him because he's been writing TV and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, Stan and I got together. I wrote a script for them. Uh, the first one was the story with death. I forget the name of it. Into the Mystery. Into the Mystery. I want to yeah. talk about that one in a second because okay. I watched that as well last time. <laughs> and, um, and Stan liked what I did. And I, he actually invited me. You know, they needed somebody to come in for like six weeks to work on staff and have them, help them prepare that fourth season. So I went down. They were filming in Orlando at Universal Studios down there. I spent six weeks down there. It was really, really fun. And uh, worked on staff, but also was writing these, these freelance scripts at the same time. And it was a great experience and Stan and I became great friends. And just to, to dovetail back into the animation stuff, what happened was um, Stan wrapped up the Superboy show. And right around the time, you know, uh, slightly after that, I was approached by Marty Pascoe, a comic book writer, who was working uh, on the 90s Spider-Man show. And uh, oh, Marty, cool. Marty approached me about writing for the show. And I said, you really should meet my friend Stan Berkowitz. He's such a great writer and blah, blah. I plugged uh, Marty and Stan together. That opened the door to Stan. Stan went on to an, an Emmy award-winning career in animation on all those DC animated shows and movies. Yeah. And then it was Stan who came back a few years later and said, hey, do you want to write for Justice League Unlimited? Which really is the thing that began my animation career. So all these little circles within circles. Um, that, that's so interesting. I, I never really thought of the Stan Berkowitz connection because I, I do think that season three and season four of Superboy, the, the really strong episodes, they, they feel similar to something that you'd see in a, in a DC animated cartoon, especially... Mm -hmm. Like a Know Thine Enemy, like it, it feels like some of those Batman the Animated Series type episodes where we really dive into the villain and, and their psyche and where they're coming from and stuff like that. Um, I, I You mentioned Into the Mystery there. I watched that one last night. Even among Superboy fans, it's not an episode you really hear talked about, but 
I, th I thought it was so moving and so powerful. For anyone who doesn't know, it involves Clark trying to track down his long-lost aunt, so Martha Kent's sister, who was kind of a bit of an eccentric growing up, and she was always a little bit flighty and a bit weird, and she, she was always traveling off on, 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 on these kind of adventures and stuff like that. But Clark always kind of saw a kindred spirit in her because because she was different and because she had this voracious appetite for life and because she kind of embraced things that were that were strange and unknown and, and he kind of saw he was an outsider and he and he found sort of a friend in her and I, I thought that was really interesting and throughout the whole episode Superboy is seeing this vision of kind of a grim reaper type character who's appearing just as people are about to die and he thinks this that this is some villain he has to stop but then at the end of the episode he finally finds his aunt and she's dying of cancer and this grim reaper arrives again and she says oh no don't worry clark it's okay it's it's one more step into the mystery and i just thought it it, it felt really really poignant especially for you know the superboy show it wouldn't really touch on themes as adult as that and i i was kind of moved by it and i was wondering was there a personal reason that you wrote that episode you know, you know or? where the where the initial idea came from i had pitched stan some ideas and i think one of the ideas had to do with someone close to him dying and stan said well what about superboy meets death you know mm. this is great because um you know all of us who are alive i think are obsessed with death it's just in the nature <laughs> of being alive on the planet and wondering about what it is and what's on the other side and and um the metaphysical questions and the emotional questions around all that and so it's just my kind of story. It's the kind of themes that I can always dive into. And and so it was a story that, you know, within the context of that show, allowed it to get sort of metaphysical and philosophical and, as you said, poignant. And and it was just a, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not the kind of thing you would expect from a show like that, but that's because Stan was there. Stan was open to that kind of thing. He Stan, you know, Stan is a... Uh, really, really wanted that show to be as good as it could be within the confines of their budget and where they were filming and all these other things. So, yeah, that that was a that was a nice way to to, to enter into that world. And then finally, the the, the final two episodes he wrote were uh, "To Be Human," which were Bizarro centric episodes. And, right. Uh, we're we're big Bizarro fans on this podcast. Uh, we're we're going to do a whole special episode on all the different depictions of Bizarro. And I feel like it's safe to say that the best live action Bizarro ever was probably in the Superboy show. And th that episode was was very interesting because it involved Bizarro uh, getting kind of a, a cure for his condition, and he he finally becomes human but it, it comes at a price because they use part of superboy's dna i think and it, it ends up having a detrimental effect on superboy and the only way to cure superboy is for bizarro to give up this kind of newfound humanity right, it's, it's similar to, to kind sacrifice. of flowers from algernon kind of that's, vibe to it. well that's exactly you know stan said to me let's do a bizarre story he said do charlie that was the movie version of flowers for algernon so that yeah. was our jumping off point and and then and then of course whenever you're leading up to a moment like that where you see someone is given a life they never had before and they have to make that kind of sacrifice i'm always looking you know you always want a really great emotional core to your stories yeah if a story doesn't move me in some way uh, like i'm not a fan of like plot centric stories i may be able mm. to enjoy that watch a movie where it's all like a little you know a little chess game or something going on but i have to be emotionally invested and especially as a writer as I said, what I care about is what's going on inside people's heads and hearts, um, and and those bigger questions of life. And so this this was a it was a sweet story. It was a really sweet story, and 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 a fun story. And I think that story and and the Lex Luthor story uh, gave Gerard Christopher, who played Superboy, some different beats to play. 
Mm. You know, he 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 didn't have to play his Superboy in the same way that he always did. And the same thing with Into the Into the Mystery. I guess it kind of stretched the character a little bit, especially mm. the Lex Luthor one, because he had to actually become Luthor while he was walking yeah. through his memories. You know. And those episodes, like people forget, like those episodes were only 20, 21, 22 minutes each. Yeah, like, probably it, without commercials, they were probably 22 minutes. Yeah, You know, like it's so a very small amount of, of time to to tell a story and to get a story right. across. And, you know, like that, I, I watched um, Know Thine Enemy there recently. And yeah, it's by far the, the, the Superboy show didn't air here in Ireland at the time. Um, so I only... Most people in the United States didn't know it existed even when it was on. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we, we, we know a lot of people who are, who are big into it, and it, it did show on Sky. I know um, Oliver Harper and that has watched it, and I know other people watched it and stuff. And But I, I found it later in life, thanks to Rob. Rob, Rob introduced me to it. Um, but like that, that No Night Enemy, like I was really invested in that episode watching it compared to say some of the season one episodes and even the season two episodes. Like they're really what I was really invested sitting down watching it and seeing his relationship with the sister. Um, and, you know, the fact that he came from an abusive family and an abusive father. And, you know, it really did. It was poignant. It, it really went to a dark place um, for, for a show of its kind. And I, I think that was very admirable to, to go there with it. And it also and, helped that they had Sherman Howard playing Lex Luthor. Yes. yes. Again, many people have never even seen the show. I think he's one of the very best Lex Luthers there ever was. He's an amazing actor and he was phenomenal in that. Really phenomenal. And he um, looks like he's having a great time uh, playing yes, the part as yes. well. Like he, he, he's just loving the, you know, he, he hams it up and he's loving yeah. it, but, but not in a bad way. Yeah. It's, there's it's, good hamming and there's bad hamming. And yeah, it's like it's, he, he took it right. You know, and if you're playing Lex Luthor, let's face it, you know, you want to take it up and he really mm. took it up, but also while he's taking it up, it's emotionally grounded. The emotions are real. He's I, yeah. I can't say enough good things about him or his performance. He's fantastic. Yeah. And, I, and I the really directing like, too. Oh yeah, he he wrote an episode called Mind Games as well. By the way, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's actually one of my favorite uh, Superman Lex Luthor stories ever. They they just get trapped in a mine together because there's oh the mine episode. You know what? I one of the things I remember was that the fourth season also, right? No, I think that was the no? third season. But oh, um, okay. it, it's essentially a bottle episode. They're just trapped in a mine, and the the super Superboy can't break out of the mine because there's kryptonite everywhere, and they just sit down and they just have this you know frank and honest discussion together about you know who they are and what they want out of life and it has one of my favorite lex Luthor moments ever superboy asks him you know what what do you want what's the thing you want more than anything else and luther just goes to be king for a day i just think it's so brilliant <laughs> that's great that's really um great. i i i wanted to um i've lost my train of thought oh yeah i i wanted to say just one final thing on know thine enemy what I really, really loved, you introduced this idea that Lex has created this robot with all of his memories um, in, in programmed into the robot. And he's also created a, a Lena robot. Uh, but then the real Lena arrives um, to try and convince Lex to, to, to not to blow up the, the world or whatever. Um, and when the robot discovers that Lena will die... Uh, the robot cancels the um, cancels the, the the countdown, and I just thought it was so powerful because he'd he'd programmed the robot too well because he programmed it with the, the love for his sister. Yes. So yes. he couldn't allow harm to come to his sister, and I just I thought that was really really clever. And yeah, yeah. Well, the robot was more in a lot of ways was more honest Lex than Lex was because yeah. Lex couldn't deal with that stuff. He kept that stuff in check. And the last scene, and I, I, what I seem to remember is the very last shot, and it didn't, I don't think it really came across, 
is that there is a tear going down the robot's cheek at the very end. And I don't know if you can really see that in the finished version. Um, because, because, you know, his heart's broken. Because also, the, if I remember correctly, when the real sister shows up, she's appalled by him. Yeah, she's yes. disgusted. And what he's become. And he's like, you know, but I love you. And then, he, then the real Lexus. Now it doesn't matter. I never loved you. I never loved you. And you go to the to the android or the robot, whatever it was. And yeah. there's a there's a single tear going down his cheek. Um, so yeah, that I, that's that's that. The, you know, I I loved working on that show in general, but those that two parter was that was my absolute favorite. And it also it showed me, you know, what what the right director can do working with very little. I think the guy's name was Brian Spicer, and I'm pretty sure he's gone on to a very very good directing career in television. He directed the Power Rangers movie a couple of years later. Oh, did he? Yeah, but I think yeah. he's done a lot more than that after that. And he just did such a great job. It, it really came, felt like a little movie. And, you know, it, and it was not a big budget episode. One of the great things that I really enjoyed, and I, that was in the script, was the memories were done very minimalistically. Yes. It yeah. was almost that sort of German expressionism with the, you know, the shaft of light and a few little props and that's all. And I've always liked that kind of thing where we do you use something very minimal and play with light and shadow. So that didn't cost a lot of money, but it was very dramatically effective and they did it so well. Um, but again, so, you know, what I that show was almost like film school for me because I could see where certain episodes if the directing was a little off or if a performance here was a little off that that when it comes to, to film, and TV, and it's the same thing in comics, really. Every element, for something to really work, every element needs to come together. You can have the greatest script in the world. If one of your performances is off, it's going to die. Or if the directing is off, or whatever it is, they all, it all has to be in balance. And know that enemy, like every element was really in balance on that one. And, it was, yeah. uh, and, and th this might be a silly question, but when you write an episode for, for a show like that, do you yeah. just submit that episode and then you hear nothing more about it? Or are you there when they're filming? Or... Um, so on that show, I'm trying, I, I was not there for the filming, but I was on, I, I was, I'm trying to think if I was still on staff when I wrote that, or if I wrote that after I got back from Florida, I might've, I, I might've written that after I got back. Um, I think I wrote the Bizarro story while I was there and, and, and the Lex story when I got back. So no, I was not there for the filming. You know, but also, you... I lived in New York, so a lot of the yeah. stuff is done in LA. And like, yeah. but when I, when I sold my first script to the, to the 80s Twilight Zone, uh, you know, they said, you know, they weren't going to pay for it, but they said, if you want to come on out and watch the filming, you can. Believe me, I got on a plane and I went out yeah. there to watch them film, film that episode. And even with the animated stuff, you know, if I lived in LA, I would be there for for the voice recordings and things like that. Yeah, um, and and do you sit down and say when like when say No Light Enemy airs, do you sit down and watch it at home? Do you watch it yourself and and kind oh, of? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I know some people are like, oh, I don't like watching my own stuff or whatever. But I, no, I, no, I, I'm not. I'm not that person. I want to see it. You know, good, bad, or indifferent. I want to see it. I either <laughs> want to be delighted or cringe or whatever the response <laughs> is going to be. You know. Uh, I, I suppose go, go, going back to one of the things you're best known for, JM, uh, is is a, is a book that is commonly associated with Superman, but your run in it uh, doesn't feature Superman. So it's Justice League International. Um, I have to say, I, obviously, we're big Justice League fans here. Um, my, my two favorite runs of Justice League ever are Justice League of America by Grant Morrison in, in the mid 90s and Justice League International uh, by Keith Giffen and, and yourself. I just think it's it's such an ingenious uh, way to approach the Justice League books. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, it's it's kind of it's a lot more kind of broadly comedic, uh, and it's kind of done almost in the style of a sitcom. 
Um, and I, I just think it's so good. I, I only I, I, I read through the whole run last summer and I just thought it was so, so much fun. And um, to, to be honest, I, I, I almost think they, they, they could take a, a leaf out of that out of that run if they ever try to do a Justice League movie again. I, I think um, that would be a good way to do it. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about how that came about and uh, and kind of the enduring legacy of it? Yeah, you know the enduring legacy. You know, those are those are phrases that no one ever thinks about. You know, especially <laughs> in comics, especially in the eighties. Oh yeah, what's it? What's going to be the enduring legacy of our Justice League run? You know, because because really, you know, even in the eighties, you know, collected editions were just coming in. Really, you just even when I was working on Craven, it's like it's it, it was the next Spider-Man story. You know, that's all it was, and the the book comes out, and the book is gone, and and that's the end of it. You think, you know, people may remember it fondly or not. So you can, and anyone that goes into a project thinking about their enduring legacy is probably going to screw it up royally. You, know? <laughs> you can't think that way. You just can't think that way. I had worked on the tail end of the previous incarnation, uh, which was the Detroit League. And uh, Jerry Conway, who had written the vast majority of that run, had left the book. And they knew they were going to be launching a new Justice League. So Andy Helfer, who was the editor, asked me to please come in and do the final the final arc, which, you know, killed off Vibe and, and Steel. And it was, it was a big writing a, a fini to that, to that Justice League. And that was that, and I thought I was done. So I also want to say, so between that Justice League and our Justice League, I never felt like I was writing the Justice League because it was never Superman, Batman, yeah. Wonder Woman, Flash. It wasn't that, yeah. it wasn't that, I didn't get to write the, the quote real Justice League until I wrote for Justice League Unlimited, you know? It was mm. the first time I felt like I was really writing the Justice League. I think of our Justice League as existing in its own little universe, you know, it has almost nothing to do with the rest of the DC universe. So long story short, Keith was going to be writing uh, the, the new incarnation of the Justice League. Um, and both he and Andy thought he wasn't, you know, he's a great plotter and they both thought that he wasn't quite ready to step in and actually do the scripting. So they sent me the first issue that Keith had been working on and I looked through it and I thought, he's, this is great. He's ready. You don't need me. I fought with them for a good six months telling them they didn't need me before I <laughs> just relaxed and enjoyed what we were doing. So I kind of got, you know, yanked onto it uh, almost against my will. But, you know, Andy Helfer is very persuasive. Andy was a really essential ingredient in that book's success. He's the one that put all these little pieces together. No mm. one would have thought of putting me and Keith together. We were like in such different realms, our work. And then Kevin McGuire, who was essentially brand new to the business, that Andy could see that he was the perfect guy to bring those stories to life. And, and we just sort of stumbled into it. Uh, you, you know, people think there was a plan. So did you did you go and going? We're going to do a lighthearted uh, superhero sitcom. Those words never passed anybody's lips. It was just like it's the new Justice League, and here we are, and we're going to go. And if you, especially if you look at the earlier issues, there are, there's a lot more serious action adventure yeah. going on. But Keith, by his nature, um, has this, has a great sense of humor, so that slips into the stories. And the great thing about our collaboration and our relationship was, I could then kind of he would create the foundation. And then I would build on that through the dialogue and through the captions and through, you know, through the script itself. So Keith would lay out some wonderful little setup for jokes or, or a relationship. And Keith has no artistic ego. So normally, if you're working on someone else's plot, you know, they'll be very upset if you diverge for their plot or play with their plot or twist it or bend it. Keith loved that. 
he encouraged me to just do whatever I wanted. And so did Andy. So I would take the stories and play with them and get the characters talking to each other and spin them this way. Keith would see what I did. He would build on that. Then he'd throw new things at me and I would build on that. Um, I always uh, I always say only half jokingly that my job was to take one good joke that Keith had and then beat it into the ground, you know, for like six <laughs> yeah. months. Um, you know, the memory, my memory, we, we, we always argued about who came up with Bwahaha, you know, which has become yeah. kind of the signature of that run. And Keith thinks I came up with it in the script, and I think that he had it in his plot. And I just thought I I thought that was a hilarious way for someone to laugh, and so I just started repeating it and repeating it and repeating it and repeating it, and that became, uh, in a weird way, our signature. People call it the Bwahaha Justice League. Who would have thought some laughing sound effect would define our entire run? You know? <laughs> so we just we just kept playing that way and building that way, and then in Kevin. We had the perfect artist. When you're doing, those stories were based first and foremost in character and character interaction. You know, there was action, yes, but it was really all about these characters interacting. And Kevin is the perfect person. You know, Kevin, nobody can do facial expressions the way that Kevin ha can or body language or any of those things. He was, and he set the tone for all the artists that followed him because he didn't stay for the whole five years. Um, and so it was just, you can't make these things happen. Something happens and you put the right people together and there's a chemical combat, uh, you know, uh, the, the chemicals erupt in a certain way and magic happens and you can't force it. You can't make yeah. magic happen. I've worked with great artists and I've done a great script and they've done a great job and somehow you put it together and it just kind of goes, I don't know why. Yeah. And then you put me together with somebody else and all of a sudden without trying something happens, you know, and it's, uh, and it's magical and it's inexplicable and it's wonderful. Well, one of the one of the really interesting characters in that run is Maxwell Lord. And what I really love about him in that run is he he isn't really a villain and he's also not really he's he's a very morally gray character. Yeah. But um what 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 I'm wondering is I, I know in more recent stories they they tend to just cast him as a as an outright villain. He's kind of almost like a proxy Lex Luthor. And I know in the in the Wonder Woman 1984 movie that just came out, um, he's very much kind of in the mold of Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor in that movie. Right. And I'm just wondering what, what your thoughts are on on those characterizations and why do you, why you think they kind of simplify it or streamline yeah, it? Yeah, you know, well, I think part of it is that's what they turned him into in the comics. You know, after mm. we were done, they turned, you know, they, they kind of turned our whole series on its head and said Max was actually this horrible person all along who was manipulating everybody and shot Blue Beetle in the head and all this stuff. And, you know, first, let me say, it's comics. We're all doing this to each other all the time. I'm sure I've taken other people's characters, twisted them in a certain way that made their heads explode and they must have hated it, you know? So that's just the way it works. People, other writers are going to, you're working in a shared universe. Other writers are going to come along. They're going to play with these characters that you think are yours and uh and they're not in the end even though you know even if it's your creation if you create it for one of these companies it becomes part of that shared universe yeah. so that said no our max was not a villain he what he was was in the beginning he was being manipulated first of all yeah by that whatever it was i don't remember was it a computer or some kind of super ai or something that was manipulating him and over the course of the book um you saw that he was at his core a decent guy who maybe you know he 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 was a businessman. He liked to bend and yeah. twist and go into the shady corners here and there. But at, at heart, he was a decent guy. And he he loved being part of the Justice League. And he loved those other characters. They had great a great relationship. Even if he was manipulating them, he still loved them, you know? So I never saw, never saw Max as a villain, ever, ever, you know? 
Um, two, two quick things I want to ask you. I'm conscious that we don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, it's been amazing so far. Um, there's lots of James Bond references in your run. And um, that, that there's, there's, that there's references to The Living Daylights, which I think was probably the Bond movie that was out at the time. Uh, there's definitely a, a shot of the Aston Martin that Timothy Dalton drove. Uh, again, that was probably put in there by Kevin Maguire. Kevin, I think, I think Kevin, Kevin probably leaned into a lot of the Bond stuff visually, yeah. There's an entire issue where where um, Bruce Wayne is the the front cover of the issue says his yeah. name is Wayne Bruce Wayne. Right. Uh, right. I'm guessing you're all Bond fans. You know, I think that probably came out of the plot uh, uh, from from Keith. But I when I was a, when I was a kid, starting in like the fifth grade, um, I, I was a Bond fanatic, a complete Bond fanatic. Uh, you know, I'm old enough that I when I was in fifth grade was when Goldfinger came out. Oh, wow. And I saw that movie and the top of my little head exploded. And I immediately, you know, just went out. I read all the books. You know, when there was a new movie coming out, it was like a new Beatles album to me. It was like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't believe this. I totally, totally, totally went Bond bananas for a few years, you know. And I still have a great affection for it. A couple of years ago, I thought it'd be fun to reread some of those books um, from an adult perspective uh, mm. and see how they hold up. And it was... Uh, they didn't hold up the way I wanted them to, but they were still really a lot of fun. And sometimes with these things, when you go back to stuff that you read from music, you have to put them in context of the times. Yeah, and what yeah. seems tired now was groundbreaking then. Yeah. You know, and and a lot of the things that Fleming did in those books, which have become tropes now, uh, were were you know he was creating a whole new genre really of the super spy in a way that had never been done before. But I, I enjoyed going back and rereading them anyway, even even you know even if they didn't completely click the way they did when I was ten. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't do, think you do love the books. I don't think our generation, you know, subsequent generations to us, I, I, like I, I don't think we'll ever properly understand what a big thing uh, films like, you know, Doctor No and Goldfinger and those films were at the time. I mean, we grew up with blockbuster movies like we were born post Jaws. You know, we had right, you know, right. We had Robocops and Batmans and we had, you know, we've That's had all important. that. And like the current generation there has the Marvel movies, you know, they're at least five a year and all this kind of stuff. Like, I don't think we'll ever appreciate what a, an event that must have been or what a, a game changer those movies. Oh, it was. I remember when Thunderball came out. And so that was, was that the movie after, after Goldfinger? I think it yes, was. Yes, it was, yeah. And it was such a huge deal. And I remember going with my friends to the movies and we waited on line. And there were lines outside the theater. I mean, long lines just to get into my local movie theater. And what happened was we were online so long that by the time that we got to the ticket window, it had gone past five o'clock and you couldn't get in after five o'clock without an adult. Wow. So they sent us away and we all went home dejected and like practically in tears. And then my father said, what's, what's going on? What's the matter? And we told him, he took us back to the theater. Wow. and basically just yelled at them until they let us in. These kids waited online for two hours and blah, 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 blah. My father yelling was not always a good thing, but that day he used his powers for good, you know, <laughs> and we got in to see it. And like you said, yeah, it was, it was a huge deal. You know, Bond, Bond the uh, Goldfring, I think, happened the same year that the Beatles came to America. I mean, that wow. was a, for me as a kid, those were two really defining events in my childhood that really, you know, changed a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to go back to Justice League, but before we uh, finish yeah. up, I just wanted to ask you as well. There, there is a really, really terrible um, TV movie that was made in 1997. Everybody asks about that. Did they? Yeah. So it, it was clearly inspired by your run, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. You know, it's what's interesting is I recall that while we were working on the book, we had several meetings at DC, me and Keith and Jeanette Kahn, who was the publisher, 
with uh, two TV writers who were developing a, a TV movie and they wanted our input. So we spent a couple of days talking story with them. And their script, as I recall, was really quite good. Clearly okay. not the one that was made. And I don't like, I really don't like publicly criticizing anyone else's work. You know, it was also in a time when, you know, now we take it for granted that you can do this stuff and do it well. But it was yeah. a very rare thing back then to see it done well. And at that point, you know, even the Tim Burton Batman hadn't come out. Really, what yeah. did you have? You had the Superman movie, the first couple of Superman movies. And what else could you point to to say this was a great translation of a comic book? I don't think there was such a thing. So, um, so yeah, so it, it, it was not, let's just say, it wasn't the best interpretation of the, of just, the characters. Just before, we, just before we finish up, I just want to get your opinion on one thing, Jim, and that is, what's your opinion on the current state of, of the Superman character? Um, say, going forward, you know, have you watched the movies? Are you, do you think... Are you reading any of the books? Or do you follow? I the am stories? not up on what's going on in the comics. I have to say, I just I haven't seen a Superman comic in in, in quite a while. Uh, I've I've seen the movies. Um, you know, not my cup of tea. Let's put it that way. I think yeah. they're very. You know, I can appreciate something and say that's really well done. That's a really mm -hmm. great piece of filmmaking. But it's not necessarily my cup of tea. It doesn't resonate with me. So it's not like a knock on the filmmakers. Uh, so much as just not everything is going to resonate with us. And it, it didn't, it just didn't resonate with me in the same way. To me, uh, you know, the first Superman movie, and it's not, per it's far from perfect, but that mm -hmm. Superman movie to me still remains the best superhero movie ever made. With all the Marvel movies and everything else, there is a magic in that movie and a kind of an innocence and a sense of fun. And, yeah. and it's really, it's really multiple movies in one, right? You know, it's the yeah. Krypton movie, it's the Smallville movie, it's the Superman uh, Emerges movie, and it's the Superman versus Lex Luthor movie. It's four movies, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, and it really still holds up. And to me, that movie captures the essence of Superman better than almost anything. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And it, it would be remiss, just on the topic of movies, it would be remiss of us not to ask you, uh, we, we never got to talk about Craven's Last Hunt, but they did just announce uh, yesterday that Aaron Taylor Johnson is going to star as Craven in a Craven standalone movie. I, I think it's probably going to be in the same vein as the, the Venom movie and the right. Morbius movie. That's what it seems so, like, yeah. So Spider-Man won't be in it. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because your 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 Craven story is is the most iconic story to feature that character. So well, not only that, it. not only that, but it's I mean, the Craven's Last Hunt is is regularly voted the number one greatest Spider-Man story of all time. Like that's incredible. It is. It's incredible to me because the same thing I said before, you know, you don't sit down and say, I am now about to write a story that people will be talking about in 30 years and consider a classic. You just, you know, you're doing your, your best to write a good story and that's the end of it. And if it lives on, what a great thing. I've had other stories that I thought were just as good or better than that that don't live on. It's it's that, it's why did you respond to speeding bullets? It's not just about me. It's about, a just like it's a chemical connection between writer and artist, it's a yeah. chemical connection between uh, writer and audience, you know, yeah. that creates the, the, the work that's going to live on like that. So I'm always amazed uh, at the life that Craven has had, that JLI has had. You know, I go to conventions, a third of what I sign is probably Craven. A third of what I sign is, ju is Justice League related stuff. And then a third is everything else in my long career, you know. Mm. Uh, and in terms of the movie, there's people on Twitter going, what do you think? What do you think? You know, oh, well, it's terrible casting. Oh, this, it's going to... I don't, I, I can't, you know, people pass judgment, you know, and, and I think the, the internet just magnifies it. We pass judgment on things based on a casting choice and, mm. a, and, and a two sentence log line. Yeah. 
you know, you can't do that. So I said, I'll give you my opinion on the casting after I see the movie, you know, yeah. uh, because I always go back to, um, uh, you know, the Tim Burton Batman movie and Michael Keaton. And this is even before the internet. There was, all, oh my God, Michael Keaton is Batman. This is a disaster. And he was great. Yeah. And this particular actor, I am not that familiar with his work. I know he played Quicksilver. Was it in yep. the Avengers movie? Uh, and in one of the Avengers, sure. and yeah. he was um, he played Kickass, Mark Millar's Kickass right, uh, right. character, about twelve years ago. He's not the guy that was in that John Lennon bio movie playing young John Lennon, was he? Do you know? I have to look. Yeah. That I up. think he might have been. Yeah, if, if that I was think, him, I think he, he might have been. Good, he was quite good in that. He was quite good in that. I'm a, I'm a total yeah, he was fanatic. recently in um, the, the 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 initial remake of the Godzilla um, films as well. Mm-hmm, he was, mm-hmm. he was the protagonist. Yeah, so in, well, if he's the guy ones. that did the Lennon thing, he's quite a good actor. Yeah. Um, and and again, you can't judge. People transform themselves for these roles, and and uh, and I, I'm hoping that it, that what it ends up being is a setup for Craven's Last Time. But my and I. I Someone said this to me a couple of years ago on a podcast, and the idea has stuck with me ever since, and I think it's the way to do it. I would love to see Sam Raimi get that original cast from his movies back together. Because you need an older mm. Peter for Craven's yeah. Last Hunt to work. Uh, yeah. the, the, what's the kid's name that's playing him now? I forgot. Tom Holland. Tom Holland. Tom Holland. He's great. He's fantastic as Spider-Man. Yeah. But he's way too young for the Peter Parker of Craven's Last Hunt, maybe mm. in five years uh, you know, uh, or more. Uh, so if you could get Tobey Maguire back and Chris, Kristen Dunst back and, and Sam Raimi back and just do a, just the way they did a standalone Joker movie, do a standalone Craven's Land Hunt. It doesn't have to relate to the other movies, you know? Yeah. I think that, I think that uh, that would be just such a, a great way to go. Such and in a, in, go. in a world where Michael Keaton is returning to the Batman role in the new Flash film, anything is possible. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, well, it looks to like Tobey Maguire is back too in the new Spider-Man, so you never know. Right, you, you, exactly, you never know. And the, the other thing I've said for years, and some years back I even pitched it to Marvel Animation, is, you know, DC does these wonderful animated movies, and Marvel yeah. hasn't really exploited that. Do Craven's Last Hunt as an animated yeah. film. I would be great. Mm. I will write that in a heartbeat. And the other thing is, you know, you've got a story where for a third of the story, essentially, your main character is buried alive. And you know how it is with actors. They want to be in the movie a yeah. lot. And, you know, you, you watch the arc of those Raimi Spider-Man movies and the mask is off more and more and more yeah, yeah, yeah. as the movies <laughs> progress, you know, um, because I, it's me. I'm on screen. I want people to see me. And I understand that from an actor's point of view. Uh, and so I think in a big screen movie, the first thing the actor, lead actor would say, what, I'm buried for a third of the movie? But in an animated film, I think you can get away with it, you know? So uh, I would love to see them do an animated version and I would love to write that. That would be amazing. Um, well, listen, JM, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you. Do, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Is there anything you're working on at the moment? Yeah, uh, most of which, the, uh, most of what I'm working on, I can't talk about. I can't talk about... Um, Justice League Infinity, which is coming out in July from DC. It is a continuation. I'm co-writing with James Tucker, one of the producers from Justice League Unlimited. And can think of it as the next season of Justice oh, wow. League Unlimited. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. A seven, a seven issue series. And I hope if that does well, then we can do another season and another season after that. So we're great. having a we're having a great time with that. Uh, I've got another big project that I'm working on for another major comic book company, and I can't say what it is. <laughs> um, but I'm very excited. It also reunites me with a character that I'm highly identified with. Um, I'm working on uh, so an animated project right now that is not DC related, but I can't talk about it. <laughs> I, just, I just signed a deal to, for, uh, to write a, a, a novella, and I can't talk about that either, but it's nice to be able to get back to some prose. And then the other thing that I do, um, 
I have these workshops, Imagination 101, which I just brought them online this past year. I did the first one, I think, back in the fall and uh, the second one in the spring, and hopefully we'll do another one in the fall. And it's, uh, it's, it's two weekends, 10 hours, really, really a deep dive into the creative process through the filter of comics and animation, but really it's all about storytelling from the practical nuts and bolts to the metaphysical aspects of storytelling. And it's, it's a really fun workshop. I always, I always have a great time teaching it. I learn things uh, from the students. So if you're interested and anyone's interested, and if it's online, that means you don't have to be where I am to take it. Obviously, you could be in Ireland and take the class. Um, so uh, if you go to my website, there's a jamdeemtance.com, there's a workshop section. So when I get the next workshop ready to go, there'll be an announcement there, or if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, whatever that is. And the other thing I do, which has been really busy this year, is I do story consulting. So people come to me, you know, with their screenplays, with their short stories, with their, you know, they want to do a five issue comic book series. And I basically work with them one on one and we do it one on one over Skype or whatever, wow. you know, so well, that's, that's a great idea. Yeah. And I, I have such a great time. You know, I've been doing this a really, really long time. I don't want to say just how long it's how long it's been. And 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 I, and I woke up a few years ago and realized, you know what, I've been doing it so long, I actually know a lot. And it's, and it's nice to be able to take that knowledge and give back and help people. You know, the way that, the way that people like Paul Levitz and Len Wein and Jim Shooter uh, taught me in the beginning of my career, uh, I'm in a position to give that back now. So I get to do that through the workshops. I get to do that through the story consulting. And it's really fun and really, really gratifying for me. Uh, so that also, if anyone's interested in that, you go to my website, there's a... Uh, uh, what, uh, there's a story consultation section on the website and it has all the information on how you can contact me, what it costs, blah, blah, blah. It's great to see that the pandemic hasn't slowed you down, Jim. No, you know, I've been a freelance. All right. It's been 40 years I've been doing this. So <laughs> it, was, it, it blows my mind that it's been so long, especially because I'm only 39. So I don't know how that worked out. So and after 40 years of being a freelancer, I don't understand why for this period of time over here, like work is really, really slow. And then all of a sudden work gets really, really busy. And then it gets really slow again. And there's never yeah. any logic to it. It's like living in a universe without logic. Yeah. It doesn't matter how successful, how long you've been doing. It's just, it's always, it ebbs and flows, you know? And whatever reason this year, I am like so busy and I'm so grateful because I'm never happier than when I'm being creative, you know? So, yeah. and hopefully, you know, when, you, when, you're in the, when you're in the arts in whatever form, you know, retirement isn't isn't on the table. Why would you? Yeah. Why would you? I don't tell stories forever. Well, on that note, um, JM, it's been a pleasure to have you on All Star Superfan. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been us. my pleasure. Thank you, guys. And hopefully we will see you at Dublin Comic Con. We'll have to have a word with somebody about that and try and get you over here. Yeah, that would be that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Thanks, guys. Thank you Thanks very so much. much. Thank you.